You're listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. This is the fourth episode of our mini-series, Resilience in the Face of Adversity, where we ask how the coronavirus health crisis reveals insights about the values that bind us together. This episode features Jeff Cameron in conversation with Kareem Bardizi, who leads the Ryerson Leadership Lab, and Akash Maharaj, the CEO of the Mosaic Institute. They are talking about the qualities of leadership during a time of crisis and how to build a unifying vision around public policy that serves the common good. So Kareem and Akash, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about the role of government and public leadership in our social response to the coronavirus. Before we begin, I wonder if you could each introduce yourselves. Kareem, would you mind starting? My name is Kareem Bardizi. I'm the co-founder and executive director of the Ryerson Leadership Lab, a leadership and policy institute at Ryerson University. And I was formerly a journalist at the Globe and Mail and a um, senior advisor to Premiers Dalton McGinty and Kathleen. Thanks, Kermit. Akash? I'm Akash Maharaj. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the Mosaic Institute, which works on international conflict resolution. I also serve as Ambassador-at-Large for the widely named Global Organization of Parliamentarians Against Corruption. Wonderful. I'm so pleased you can join us for this podcast. Um, Kareem, maybe I can start with you. As this crisis was beginning in Canada, you wrote about the responsibilities of leadership during a time like this. So I want to ask you to begin there. What do you see as the core values or principles that should be guiding public leadership at responding to a crisis like COVID-19? Thanks, and thanks for this opportunity, Jeffrey, to get into this. Uh, leadership is a such a key element of this work and uh, this call that the circumstances of, of this health crisis have um, put to everybody. Uh, there's a couple elements that come to mind I like, I'd like to speak about leadership, not just for politicians or political figures, uh, but for um, anyone in a position of formal authority. And uh, there's a few things that come to mind. Um, one is the need to check in on your people. So those, the, those, those constituents who are, um, who have an, uh, to whom you have an accountability relationship because they're members of your organization, because they work for you, because uh, they are direct beneficiaries of your work in a very important way. Uh, and it's really important to hear how they're feeling and to get a sense of uh, uh, where they're at. In small organizations, uh, people can do this by doing those individual check-ins. Uh, in larger organizations, people can look to the distributed uh, accountabilities that they have to the people who are the frontline relationship uh, holders with the, the people. So that's a really important thing to do, just to, to check in and, and see how people are doing and to, and to have a, a regime, a schedule for checking in. And then there's a, there's a piece around reshaping yourself, your work, and your organization towards uh, the very present work that's in front of us. Um, it's easy, especially um, in professional settings, to maintain the status quo, to say, okay, we'll work from home, but the work we'll, we'll, we're doing is going to be mostly the same. Some of the work that we're doing right now doesn't matter as much. And other pieces of work that we hadn't been doing as much of, or that might have been on the side of our desk, uh, or it might have been a, a diversion, take new salience. So this podcast is a, is a perfect example of a community 
coming together and and hearing and getting some some solace perhaps some wisdom uh some guidance that's an activity that takes on new salience uh any organization that is in the, in the uh, work of communicating uh and most organizations do and most leaders do they have to do more of that <laughs> uh so th- those are some initial thoughts i'll also maybe make an observation that as we do this conversation out- outbound conversation and this l- listening it's really important to understand that people are processing this information at different speeds and so patience is a really important virtue at a time when impatience is the primary emotion uh, being felt and the primary thing that being expressed towards leaders. Uh, leaders in turn have to be patient and have to be able to sit, take that time uh, to listen and to understand that people are not processing this information at the same speed and that certain needs are going to have to be prioritized over others. Thanks, Kareem. Uh, Akash, just drawing on some of the, the qualities of leadership that uh, Kareem was referring to, I know you've you've written and spoken about uh, practical idealism as an approach to to leadership. And uh, in fact, in one thing you wrote, you said that we should hold fast to our, our ideals even as we are being stripped of our illusions. And it does seem like we are living in a time when that is a particular kind of challenge. So as a practical idealist, what is the practical idealist approach for public leadership in the context of a crisis like this? It's an interesting question. I mean, when I speak of practical idealism, what I mean is the twin responsibility, first, to hold to high ideals, but secondly, to press them into meaningful action. If it's easy to say the right things, it's harder to do the right things, especially when doing the right thing requires personal sacrifice. And it's just as easily to refuse to take practical steps to hold on to some sterile notion of, of idealism. But ideals without actions are sterile and action without ideals are inherently corrupt. I think the question for everyone who wants to make a difference in the world is first of all, what does a better world look like? And second of all, what do I need to do ethically to help achieve that? I think in the context of coronavirus and COVID-19, there's it has some common elements with all sorts of crises that we have faced in the past and will face in the future. But I think one of the most important callings for people like myself who aspire to be practical idealists in this context is to remember our responsibilities, ourselves and our responsibilities to the extent that we have influence over others, to recall us all to our better selves. Because it's in, it is precisely during moments of crisis when we most feel under threat that we are most apt to forget our ideals and our better selves, to act in ways that we think answers our own immediate needs in the short term, like hoarding supplies, even if we don't really need them. Um, And in the end, don't just hurt others, but they actually end up hurting ourselves. From that, I think one of the key elements of sound leadership, and when I look at leaders whom I most admire myself, they've always been people who have been able to speak to and create a a sense of shared purpose between different people, that as much as we may feel under threat as individuals, as much as we might quite naturally feel worried for ourselves, for our own own friends, our own families, that ultimately our own well-being as individuals is inextricably intertwined with the well-being of every other member of society, and that we cannot hope to get through these crises alone 
we are only going to get through them individually if we all get through them together. So I, I guess ultimately one of the, to my mind, one of the key facets of good leadership, both during the crisis and during more normal times, whatever normal might happen to be, is an ability to foster empathy in oneself and in, in others. The sense that not only are my interests tied to the interests of other people, but that the interests and well-being of other people are as valuable in, in and of themselves as my interest and, and my well-being. And again, that's, that's very easy to say, and I doubt very many people would dispute that in theory. It's a question of whether we're prepared to live, them, live out those ideals and whether we're prepared to make the sacrifices that are, are necessary to live in a society that values every member of our society. Thank you, Akash. Kareem, uh, we've just reflected on some very high ideals. Now to bring things to maybe the political reality right now. Um, you know, in the early days of this crisis, it, it did seem like politicians at both the provincial and federal governments were able to transcend to some degree partisanship in order to work together on public policy. We heard premiers praising other provincial leaders of different political parties. Now, of course, there are signs that attitude has faded somewhat, but nevertheless, this has been an ethic I've seen you promote in your work with the Ryerson Leadership Lab, bringing together uh, leaders uh, and thinkers from different ends of the political spectrum to talk together. So I'm wondering what you think we can learn from that nonpartisan moment that followed the crisis. I think it was productive in the very early days. And one uh, one uh, thing that we've seen that I really hasn't gotten enough attention, I'm from New Brunswick, and um, I noted that um, the uh, the premier of, uh, the premier of New Brunswick, uh, Blaine Higgs, apparently on the advice of his education minister, who was a former, uh, now conservative, but former leader of the New Democratic Party. In New Brunswick, they decided to, put, to pull toge- put together an all-party uh, leaders committee. It's a minority parliament there, much like it is federally. And they um, they put together a, a committee of uh, of the of the four main uh, party leaders with seats in the legislature, and that has proven to be instrumental to getting some of the public policy changes through in New Brunswick and to get some uh, some sense of uh, more shared common purpose. So we have these tools that we can use to channel partisanship towards things that are more healthy, and um, I think we'll need to continue to do that. We'll need to have a ways to keep friction in the system without it becoming personal and without any appearance that it becomes about partisan political gain. Hmm. Some people are starting to now stray back towards that partisan political um, angle. Uh, It's hard to detect. It's something that you have to kind of smoke out. (laughs) Um, But the most artful of of politicians are starting to do that a little bit. Um, And it's not a matter of calling it out. It's a matter of calling in uh, that shared purpose and that that empathy that Akash was mentioning. Can mm-hmm. I just say one other thing? Because Akash yeah, said yeah. something really interesting around what's another way of elevating nonpartisanship or having healthy partisanship is to do exactly what Akash was mentioning, which is to elevate those non-official leaders or those institutions, uh, those places that are on the front lines instead of following like the officially uh, deemed leaders in every case. And I would just add that in Canada, we have a huge opportunity to do that through the front line, all the front line work that's happening. Canada provinces, cities, they don't have lists of vulnerable people. <laughs> the people who are most vulnerable, people who are most at need are known by those more frontline institutions, charities, hospitals, school boards, universities and colleges, uh, the, the the large social sector that's that exists. And so I think it's really important for politicians in particular and business leaders 
to have some deference to those other leaders uh, who are closer to the situation. Uh, and we can do that. That's something that is easy to get behind. It's easy to get behind uh, the YMCA's, the United Way's, the Kids Help Phones, all those organizations that are doing frontline work uh, as much as it is to get behind uh, the hospitals and the schools. Yeah, so as you were saying, there's this kind of intermediary layer of society between the individual and the institutions that is also coming to the fore right now. This is the layer of civil society, I suppose, or of of the community that is somehow modulating perhaps the relationship between public leaders, public institutions, and individuals and families. Absolutely. And no one told them that they had to have that role. It's just that's how yeah. it's evolved or that's how they, they've seen their own institutions calling. Akash, just maybe building on this point Kareem was making about how to nurture a productive kind of deliberation among those with different views, worldviews, ideological positions. Um, I know at the Mosaic Institute, you focus on nurturing public reflection and debate on pluralism and inclusion. As you know, this is a process in which you have the Baha'i community as firm supporters. We often talk about the oneness of humanity as a core element of our conceptual framework, and that implies engaging with diversity in its fullest sense. So I wonder, what, what do you think is the role of a value like inclusion, which says that there's truly no us and them. We are all, in a way, one um, in guiding the institutional response to a crisis like this. I think it's absolutely indispensable, not just during a crisis, but in, in any just society worthy of the name. I think the question is always not to, how do we all come to unanimity on any important question. It's how do we ensure that everyone has an opportunity to have his or her voice heard and that the outcome is one that we can all agree on is legitimate, well-intentioned, and critically, at least makes an effort to answer the needs of, of every member of society, that we don't try to trade off the well-being of some members of society for the benefit of others. I think that Canadians and people around the world have an almost infinite capacity to sacrifice. If they feel that sacrifice is just, if they feel that they are sacrificing for the long-term benefit of themselves and others, it, they're prepared to make those sacrifices. But if they if they believe that they're being asked to sacrifice for the benefit of, of others, that makes that that makes the entire process illegitimate and it makes social cohesion fall apart. It breaks the social contract. During coronavirus, I think a good example of this are some jurisdictions around the world where people are demanding that um, quarantines be ended and that people be be allowed or sent back to work. The key there is that often these aren't people protesting for the right for themselves to go back to work. They're protesting for other people to be sent back to work so that they don't have to pay pay for unemployment insurance payments so that they so that they can get services that they've been accustomed to receive. They are protesting in effect for other people to risk their lives for their own comfort. And I think that is poison in any society. From a, a partisan perspective, so how does one surface these a healthy and meaningful debate, especially when lives are quite literally at risk? When all this is over and we go back to normal or try to create a new normal, it will be interesting to see to what extent the energized role for civil society organizations that we are currently seeing carries forward. Because I think the truth is the best ideas in society 
always come from below. They never come from above. And that's the way democracies are designed. The key to democracy isn't strong leaders, it's strong societies that give rise to effective leaders. And the agency of individual citizens, of civil society organizations, of community groups, that is real democracy. And I think the, the societies that have been most effective at responding to coronavirus have been the societies and the governments that have been most apt to take expert advice and expert direction, have been most apt to bring in people from in, into the conversation who don't normally walk the, the corridors of power. And whether we come out of this a better society or not will depend largely on whether after this crisis is over, all those people and all those institutions still have access to the levers of power. Just maybe continuing on from this, this point about those who don't have access to the levers of power, you know, Kareem, one of the, the major issues coming out of this crisis will be addressing economic inequality. There's going to be a lot of public debt. There's going to be a lot of people still hurting. And presumably we're going to have to think and talk about inequality in a new way. So from a public policy perspective, what approaches should we be thinking about as, as we talk about and consider measures of taxation coming out of this? And furthermore, what's the role of charity and voluntary giving for those who weather this crisis without too much personal impact? How, how do we address both our government and our charitable organizations this problem of inequality as we emerge from coronavirus? Yeah, a great question, Jeffrey. And uh, I would say that picking up on uh, one of Akasha's points earlier about uh, who's, who's uh, I forget exactly how you, you phrased it much better, Akasha, everything you said beforehand in your last intervention was poetic, and I'm trying to write it down, and I will listen to this podcast and catch the rest of it. Um, but uh, you, you made an allusion, I think, to, uh, to the notion of shared sacrifice in any case, Akash. Mm -hmm. And um, we have not seen that yet. There's been widespread sacrifice. There's been widespread loss, but it hasn't been shared. We have we have some institutions um, that are doing okay. We have some institutions that are being kept whole. Uh, I would say, in particular, uh, that the, uh, the the financial sector has done seems to be doing all right uh, in this crisis and is as a key intermediary function, but hasn't been really asked, from what I can tell, to uh, engage in the shared sacrifice that uh, other other sectors of the economy, especially small business, uh, have been have been subject to. And those are conversations that actually have to happen now. Um, another sector that comes to mind is the, the platform information technology and social media companies uh, who have a, a bit of a different role in Canada and that they uh, generate a good share of profits in Canada, um, but tend not to pay their share of taxes or have the, the wealth creation aspect that the financial services companies do. So I think it's important to, again, look at what the shared sacrifice of large IT companies and large technology companies could look like at a time like this. And these are global questions. These aren't just national questions. So we're going to get to, uh, uh, like if you had this conversation, Jeff, from like first principles around around inequality, mm -hmm. uh, it would have to be a global conversation and it would be, some, would be, one, would be one that we would have to start now. Uh, we're, and we're too busy fighting the pandemic to have that properly. Uh, in terms of uh, charitable, and uh, charitable giving and voluntarism, so important, and I think we're gonna another big conversation we're gonna have to have in Canada is coming out of a crisis. Not only do you have to deal with the inequalities, but you have to deal with those things that ended up being really important that had been forgotten. Well, Krim, you you mentioned the need to consider inequality in a global context, and 
maybe I could just pass that question to Akash. I mean, you've done a lot of work, Akash, on anti-corruption, which is a is an issue that necessarily implicates the problem of inequality. And so, what would it mean to take a global uh, perspective on this problem of inequality in the wake of uh, this crisis? I think it's a, it is inequality is perhaps the defining issue of our time around the world and all the other issues that we think of as being important, be it climate change, be it poverty, be it the catastrophic number of people who live and want, um, all comes down largely to inequality, to the uh, to the hardships that are distrib- distributed unjustly and that are exacerbated by inequality, by the fact that societies lack the resources, often lack the resources to maintain basic systems of to support their people and to provide their people with with access to justice, be that social justice or criminal justice, it all comes down to who has the resources. And I think Kareem is right, it is a global problem. From an international perspective, one of the biggest measures, one of the most important measures that countries could take to reduce inequality, unjust inequality everywhere, is to tackle the problem of of tax havens. the world loses about $3.1 trillion a year to tax evasion and to money being either criminal tax evasion or money being moved legally across borders into tax havens. And that is, to all intents and purposes, an incomprehensible amount of money. It is enough to achieve all of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals six times over every year. Um, no society can prosper if its citizens feel that they are living under under systems of injustice. But it's especially bad during times of crisis. The cost of maintaining the fabric of our society, just in Canada, a developed country, um, through to the end of coronavirus, is likely to be catastrophic. And it will cripple public finances. Um, the question, therefore, is how are we going to pay for it? There will be a temptation to say, we can simply carry on as we have done in the past. We will add an enormous amount of debt to the public ledger and future generations will have to spend the rest of their lives paying it off. Or we can say that the people who have benefited the most from our society should bear proportionately the greatest responsibility for maintaining that society, especially during times of crisis. You can, as you can probably guess, I think the second is the only fair choice. We... If we are to be just, we have to be just in our own time. And that means that we have to pay for the services that we have consumed. And it means that the people who must bear the brunt of that should be the people who have most of the money. To be a citizen of a society, not just a consumer in an economy, means that you you have not just rights, but you have responsibilities. You have reasonable expectations of your fellow citizens, and you have reasonable obligation towards your fellow citizens. A time of crisis is perhaps the best possible time for us to remind ourselves of that. But it's important that that be carried through after the crisis is over. That's a lovely segue to my final question, which is the part of the podcast where I ask both of you about your hopes for the future. Akash, you said you're not an optimist, but it might be possible to still be hopeful. (laughs) It's, you know, it's clear that we're not somehow going back to normal after this crisis. There is something about a crisis like this that is a moment of collective reflection about what we want our society to look like, what it might be possible to change, what alternatives 
might exist to the way in which things have been working. So I want to ask you what potential there might be to change governance and public leadership for the better coming out of this crisis. And I'm not necessarily asking you for a realistic prediction, but maybe for your aspirations. What are your hopes for the ways in which governance and public leadership might be different coming out of this? Kareem, could I start with you? Sure. Um, uh, and again, I was writing all the things that Akash said for future uh, um, future uh, uh, credit back to you, Akash. Um, so uh, I agree, Jeff, that there is a that things will not be the same. Um, however, I um, believe that our politics will not necessarily produce a great desire for change. And so what I'm actually hopeful about is that I, I, um, because um, a crisis of this sort, uh, many, many people, and especially in Western societies, haven't had an experience of collective crisis like this that has them force themselves to imagine what a better world could be. Uh, what I'm, lo- what I'm hope- hopeful for is that there will be some, some form of big debate in Canada around the desire to return to to what was versus the building anew and that all those build anew factions can come together and that anyone who has the sense that this is an opportunity to build back better um, in their various positions, in their various situations, whether they're in formal authority positions now, whether they want those positions, whether they don't, I hope that those, uh, those dispositions, those people can find each other and can find ways to build power to make the argument and win the argument uh, uh, against those who would think or would prefer to be more comfortable thinking that we need to return back to what was. And that has a, that creates huge potential for democratic action that has huge potential to create new alliances. Uh, You're already seeing right now that uh, some of the old thinking around left and right is starting to, to, to is at least been put on pause. So again, to the point earlier, uh, that Akash made around uh, if there are behaviors that you oppose in crisis, will you refrain from those behaviors yourself when not in crisis? There's also an opportunity to ask the flip question. Are there new alliances we've built in crisis that we can continue after the crisis? Mm. Are there new dispositions that we have? And to me, this disposition, this potential to build back better uh, can unite people from a, a, a wide range of, of, of institutions and, and dispositions and perspectives and ideologies. And I look forward to all those people who want to build back better, asserting themselves, finding community with each other, and finding official power in institutions that can help them actually do that work. Akash, what about you? What are your hopes for what could come out of this? Well, I should say that I am a pathological optimist. So I, <laughs> I choose to believe that we will come out of this better and stronger, because that is, that is the only way to, to lead our lives. And if we don't come out of it better, stronger in the short term, I choose to believe that we will in the long term. In terms of some of the things I hope will come out, one is that I hope that we will come out of this of this process with better reflection on what is important to us and what we value in society. So it strikes me as, as um, extraordinary that we all take it for granted that essential workers are people like grocery store clerks, like nurses, um, like the people who pick up refuse. But normally, we don't 
treat those people or reward those people as if they are the most important members of, of society. I hope that after this is over, we will remember that the people we relied on to keep society going when things were at their worst are people whom we should continue valuing when people are when things are at, at their best. The second thing is that this period is a remarkable period as uh, for social and, e and economic experimentation. So there are public policy measures that in the past have been considered too bold, um, too large, too risky to, to even contemplate like a universal basic income. Well, now we are creeping towards uh, public programs that look remarkably like that. And we have an opportunity to find out, well, how do people really behave when they have a universal basic in income? Do they use that money to create opportunities for themselves that, make, that eventually make them more productive members of society? The third is, I'm hoping that it will persuade Canadians that there is a role for shared action, for public action in serving public issues in solving public issues. Um, for, I'd say the past 20 years at least, there's been in, an increasingly a view that the great issues of our time have to be solved to the greatest extent possible through the untrammeled and unrestrained action of market forces. And that doesn't just, that hasn't bred, not, that has bred not just skepticism about government, but the very idea of shared responsibility and shared democratic action, whether it is through government or through community organizations. Now, when we are at a moment of crisis, when our lives are literally at risk, we recognize that the only way we are going to get through this is if the public at large takes this, takes this moment in hand through democratic institutions and through community organizations. If there are things that we need to put aside during a crisis, do we really want to bring them back when the crisis is over? They should give us a chance to think, um, to think anew, to imagine the world as it should be, and to try to throw off the shackles of our fears, preconceptions from the past. Well, that's a, as good a note as any to end on. Thank you, Akash and Kareem, so much for bringing the depth of your insight and experience to bear on this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to The Public Discourse a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. You can learn more about the Baha'i Faith at baha'i.ca and follow the work of our office at opa.baha'i.ca where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.